Hey beings, welcome to the Self-Tivity Podcast, the podcast dedicated to providing content that contributes to our health, our well-being, and our mindset by sharing resources, stories, and perspectives that can assist our self-investment journey, mindful entrepreneurial journey, and or financial well-being journey. Thank you for being here for the latest series on the podcast, Religion and Spirituality. The following episode is open to this conversation. Only continue this episode if you are prepared to experience the conversation outside of yourself and experience it from a different angle or perspective. If religion and spirituality is a sensitive topic and you are easily offended, practice not taking it personally and enhancing your faith or remove yourself from this experience. All content shared today is intended to be an exercise to freely talk and is not intended to be professional advice, but intended to bring questions to bring us closer together and understand one another. Only put stock in the thoughts in life that align with your self-investment goals. Let's get into today's episode. Are you ready? Because I am. Hey, hey, vegans, you are listening to the self Study Podcast. I am Danny, your self-investing storyteller. I like to explore topics that uncover our health, our well-being, and our mindset, topics that contribute to our health, our well-being, and our mindset. And I have a few series going on on the channel or the podcast centered around topics that impact our self-development journey. And so there are about seven that I want to get into. If you've been following along so far, we talked about our well-being and the relationship between anxiety and depression. And I think that could be an ongoing relationship with some of the conversations that we're having. And now we're moving into religion and what role that has in our self-development journey. And so I have my personal development story based on my journey with religion. So I'm very, very excited to speak to others and learn how religion has had both a positive, negative, or maybe somewhere in between impact on their journey here on earth. So I'm very excited to have my guest on the show, Serena Maldonado. And I said that that way because I wanted to say it correctly and I hope that I did. You got (laughs) it. Yes. Awesome. (laughs) Serena is a survivor in every sense of the word empowered with resilience, empathy, and determination by living through child abuse, sexual assault, and leaving a high-demand religion. Tarita now shows audience how to share their stories to heal themselves and transform the lives of others. Dubbed by Faithwire News, the mom who took on Hollywood and won, Tarina is also a co-author of the book, Fear to Freedom. Her speaking superpower is her unapologetic vulnerability. Wow, I love it. And I have the pleasure of speaking to her today. Tarina, how are you? I'm doing so good. I'm really excited to be here with you and have this conversation. Awesome. And I'm very excited to have you. I'm, I've been really excited about this series and I don't know how long it's going to last, but it's probably going to last a long time if I can find people who are willing to have this conversation with me. Before we get into today's show, I would love for you to share who you are in your own words with the audience. What's your story? I love that question when it's so open-ended like that. I'm always like, well, what part of me do I share? Because I'm such a multifaceted being. Yes. <laughs> so I am a wife and a mom. Um, I am a dog mom as well as a human mom. I love traveling. I really love community and connection and friendship. Those are all really important to me. And I am also a massage therapist. I've been one for 17 years kind of transitioning out of that now as I'm stepping into this entrepreneurial journey of life coaching and speaking and facilitating 
And I just most first and foremost feel like I'm just a human and I'm here to just love on other humans and learn from everybody and their experiences. Mm, love on other humans. I love it. That's what we should do more of, like love on other humans. I think it would wait, make the world a better place. I know that's right, scary, but we need it, right? <laughs> since the topic is religion, whenever I talk with people about religion, I always just say, my religion is love. Yeah, yes. Simple as that. <laughs> yes. You can't go wrong, right? Because if there's a religion that doesn't have love, then where are we? Where are we? I want to play a game before we get started with today's conversation. And so I have made up games on here. And so because I made them up, I want to make sure that I give clear instructions on how to play. Uh, today's game is Thought ER. And so the ER stands for emergency room. So it's the emergency room of our thoughts. And so I have seven thoughts, thoughts that I got off the internet, random thoughts based on unpopular opinions about today's topic, which is religion. And so how it works is that I'll share one thought at a time. We have seven in total, and then you'll respond to each thought however you like. So you can lead with that thought. You can respond as if you were speaking to that person, if it was a quote that, you know, pulls for that, or you can just go on your own tangent, but you only have 60 seconds. So one there's 10 seconds left on the time. I'll put up this, <laughs> what you see on my screen right now. I know the listeners cannot see, but <laughs> I'm holding up a pair of glasses from my blue light because <laughs> I'm always <laughs> on the computer. And so once you see that, that means you got 10 seconds less to respond to that. And it would be ideal if you can use all 60 seconds, but if you're done at 48 seconds, it's all good. All right. I'm excited. Let's play. All right. So number one. Everywhere I go, every church I visit, and most pastors I talk to say that God is love and he loves all people. Basically, there's this conception that God is a wise, just, fair, and good Santa Claus that loves everyone. 60 seconds on the clock. How do you respond? Well, I think that God is broad. We all try and narrow God down into something specific, but I feel like universally, in almost everybody's concept and ideal of God, love is probably at the foundation, or at least I would hope it would be. And so I really do feel like God is love is a pretty accurate statement because in my opinion, if there is a God, then I feel like they would be coming from a centered place of love and a desire for our best and highest well-being and benefit and learning. And that all comes from a space of love. I know a lot of times in some religions, people compare God to a parent and the greatest form of love is. All right. Next. I am against the organization that claims to have monopolies on God, that you need Jesus plus them to get to heaven. That's a lie. 60 seconds on the clock. How do you respond? I respond, preach it. It's so true. <laughs> I don't think that any religion, any person, any prophet, pastor, minister has a monopoly on spirituality, God, any of that. I think that that is all very personal. And I think that when you subscribe to something where their way is the only way, you're losing part of your own agency. You're losing part of your own spiritual autonomy and giving that over to somebody else. Again, with the whole concept of God is love, I don't feel like 
Jesus is the answer when many people don't know Jesus. So how would that be fair to the person in a small third world country that's never heard of this person, but that's required. That doesn't feel loving to me. All right. Religion was created to control people. 60 seconds on the clock, how do you respond? I do feel that religion controls people, but I don't feel like most of the time that's where it's founded from. I feel like religion comes from a place of people trying to have control over spirituality and connection to the divine, not necessarily over other people. But then through that process, control happens of large groups of people. And it can be really sad to see that happen when I feel like a lot of times it stems from a good space of just trying to organize spirituality, connection, divine, all of those things. Okay, next. I support the Christian faith, but not the Christian religion. 60 seconds on the clock. This feels like a really loaded question because Christianity feels really broad to me. You can find a hundred different Christians and they will all define their faith differently. And so can I say blanketly that I support Christianity? Probably not. Because if your version of Christianity says that uh, you're going to hell, if you're a homosexual, I don't support that. If your version of Christianity says that Jesus died for everybody's sins and because of that, everybody can go to heaven, maybe I can get on a board with that. If your version of Christianity talks about kindness and love and service and grace, I can be on board with that. If your version of Christianity has flavors of the necessity for giving your authority to somebody else, of needing another person to be saved, then I'm not quite as on board. All right. Next, religion is a political construct. Um, again, I don't know that I feel like that's true. Religion certainly influences politics in America, as sad as that is, because there's supposed to be separation. There absolutely is not. We're based on Christian values. But I feel like religion, again, probably stems from people's desire to organize and make sense of spirituality and connection, not necessarily politics. I think that religion's probably been around since the beginning of humans in some way or another, you know, whether it was worshiping the moon and the stars or Jesus, there's always been a desire within us to figure out spirituality. And that's where religion comes from, not necessarily politics. All right. We're almost there. <laughs> Two more <laughs> left. Next one. Women are not loved in the Bible. I mean, show me where the women are loved in the Bible. And I'll disagree with it, but I don't know that there's many examples that can contradict that. There's not very many women in the Bible, period. And the ones that are there, many of them are harlots and adulterers and mm. sinners, or they're multiple wives to prophets or they're servants to people. So I'm sure God loving everybody encompasses women. But show me where there's a story specifically about the feminine divine, the power of women, or a woman just being strong and powerful and beautiful. I mean, I know that there's some, there's like Ruth and Naomi, but even within those, I see elements of abusive themes. So I don't think the Bible is a women's empowerment book by any means. 
<laughs> oh goodness. This is gonna be a good call. This is gonna be a good conversation. Last one. Science is a true religion. 60 seconds on the clock. How do you respond? So if we look at religion as people's way of trying to make sense of spirituality, and oftentimes I feel like within that comes wanting to have guidelines for morals and some sort of belief or hope for the afterlife. I don't know that science really fits into that as far as a religion. I do think some people look at science religiously and they certainly feel the same fervor and conviction towards science as other people do towards their religion, but I don't think that they're the same. Okay, we did it. You got through another version. (laughs) Yay! Oh, thank you. That was kind of fun. (laughs) I'm glad that you found it fun. You know, when I think about these games, I I think that they're fun. So I'm like, I hope that people like to do things like this. But most (laughs) of the time, the people who want to talk, like I like to talk, they're okay with these thinking games. So (laughs) I think I'm finding my people. (laughs) So when I wanted to connect with you for the series, I was looking for people who had some type of transition as it relates to religion. And it could be that they just had a different perspective about the religion they grew up in, or maybe they were in an intense religion and they got out of it, or maybe they just completely decided to convert from one religion to another religion based on X, Y, and Z. And so what I had for you is that you were just in a high demand religion. And so there's so much mystery behind this. Because what do you mean (laughs) by a high demand religion? (laughs) Like, give me the deets. So let me give you some examples of a high demand religion. And that might help broaden your understanding a little bit. So Scientology, Jehovah's Witness, Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventist. What are the Amish? Is that like Mennonite? Uh, I don't know. Like really Orthodox Judaism. Those can be some examples of a high demand religion. So which high demand religion were you a part of? I was born and raised in the Mormon LDS faith. Ooh, this is interesting. I've been waiting for a conversation with someone who was in the Mormon faith. And I'm not sure because I have a perspective based on how people talk about Mormons. And I don't know if it's true or not, but hopefully we can kind of dig into that today. So I'll give you one of the things that I know or not even know, but these are the things that I assume about Mormons or the Mormon faith. And I think some of them have changed as the time went by, Mm -hmm. but maybe not. You can let me know. I'm also really excited to hear this because I love hearing what other people think about Mormons. (laughs) Okay, good, good, good. Okay, so before we get into it, so the first thing, I think of as multiple wives, right? A man can have more than one wife and that's not too crazy. But the other thing that, you know, stands out is that most Mormons (laughs) are like against, like, I don't know if they are against Black people or they think that Black people weren't the chosen people or like they're the spies. Can you give some context? Am I I just making up stuff? So I can speak to both of those. Um, The origins of Mormonism definitely are full of polygamy. It was actually the reason why the Mormon people left Missouri and went to Utah 
was because at that time, Utah was not part of the United States and polygamy was illegal. And so then they could practice polygamy without fear of legal repercussions. So polygamy, once Utah became a state or when they were wanting to become a state, I don't remember the exact timeline, but they had to disavow polygamy because it was illegal and they wanted to be part of the United States. And so amazingly enough, the prophet got revelation that they shouldn't practice polygamy on that anymore. Mm. The timing <laughs> of that is just so coincidental. Um, so there are many, many offshoots of original mainstream fundamental Mormonism. Some still do practice polygamy. The mainstream Mormon religion no longer practices polygamy here in this life, but they do still believe that polygamy is of God. They believe that polygamy will happen in the afterlife. So for example, if we were still Mormon and I died and my husband got remarried, we would be in a polygamous relationship for eternity. So that's where that works and where that lies. And to the point of Mormons not thinking, I don't remember exactly how you phrased it, but thinking that black people are less than that's because in the book of Mormon, the Mormon scripture, it talks about how, and this refers more to native American indigenous people. They believe that the book of Mormon is a literal history of Native American and indigenous people. And it said that the ones with dark skin were evil and they were given dark skin as a curse. Mm -hmm. But if you were righteous, then that curse could go away. And so whiteness is a sign of righteousness and goodness. But up until 1979, people of color were not allowed to fully participate in the church's ordinances and covenants and different things. Again, ironic, the timing of revelation from God, there was a lot of pressure on the BYU sports was being excluded from things because of the church's stance on black people. And there was threat of the church losing their tax exempt status and those kind of things. And then magically, God said, let them all (laughs) have the priesthood. Wow. There's definitely a lot of covert racism still within the church. If you look at the main church leadership, it is almost exclusively white, Mm. which was definitely something that I even as an active believing member had issue with, I was like, doesn't feel good to me. Oh, I'm so glad that you covered those because I've met Mormons before. And I think that, like you mentioned, there's a mainstream because they don't really practice it that much. And so I remember having that conversation. They're like, and they were looking at me like, what? But they were younger, probably in high school. So I think a lot has changed in their faith. And then they had like an idea, but they were just like, yeah, we don't do that. Um, yeah. But it's funny that you mentioned about the black race. I think your words were that they were the devil or the evil. It was a curse. A curse. Their skin okay. was dark as a curse for their unrighteousness. Yeah. So one of the things that I got into, I'm just going to call it a thing for now. (laughs) There was, we just had the complete opposite that white people were cursed because of the lack of melanin in their skin. So there's like some scriptures that they had um, to cover that difference. So were there any scriptures that, or what did you follow the Bible? Do Mormons follow the Bible or is it another book? 
So Mormons do believe the Bible with the caveat of as far as it's translated correctly. And Joseph Smith did do some of his own independent translation of parts of the Bible that they kind of incorporate. But definitely the emphasis is on the Book of Mormon, Pearl Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenant, the Mormon scriptures. And then occasionally you get into the Bible a little bit, but Mm -hmm. it's not their main scripture by any means. So the Book of Mormon, I've never cracked over open a Book of Mormon. So does it look like scriptures or does it look like just like a storybook or what is the Book of, like, what's the structure? Like, do you memorize scriptures from the Book of Mormon or is it the same concept as like if you had the Bible? So it's formatted very similarly to Bibles that I've seen where, you know, there's books just like there's Genesis, Exodus, there's different books within the Book of Mormon. And within those, there's different chapters, and then it breaks it down into verses. So very similar to the Bible's format. Okay, good. So we got the foundation out the way. So how long were you a part of the space? So you grew up. When did the time come where you said, I'm no longer interested? I was 36. So a long time before I figured it out. Yeah. (laughs) What did you figure out? Really, I just was trying to do a little bit more study to kind of enhance my faith and increase my understanding of the foundations of the church and the prophet of Joseph Smith and things I learned, I couldn't reconcile as Joseph Smith being a prophet of God or the religion being from God. And so specifically some of the things we spoke about. Okay. So I knew that like polygamy existed, but it was always just painted in this really pretty picture and always seemed consensual. And as I learned about it and specifically a couple of incidences of, you know, some of Joseph Smith's wives, it was just as I read about some of them, the things that I saw happening, all I could see was sexual predator. Mm. Like I couldn't see it as a man acting under the direction of God because was specifically one story. There was a girl who was 14 and he went to her or her parents, probably both and said, God's told me that you're supposed to marry me. And she didn't want to. And she kind of said, no, I don't want to do that. And she was very, very much so coerced into marrying him. He promised her not only her, but her family there any preceding family that they would be guaranteed salvation in heaven and she was kind of locked up for days while she prayed about it and it just like oh that's a man of authority threatening coercing and manipulating a 14 year old girl like that's just sexually predatory he also married girls who were again teenagers who were living in his home as foster daughters so Mm. playing a parental role to them and he married them and I'm just like no you don't marry your daughters regardless of whether it's biological or not you don't do that he would send men away on a mission and then marry their wives while they were gone he married he married mothers and daughters Like it just, once I saw it for what it was, I was like, this is sexual exploitation of women. And that's all that this is. This is not called of God because, you know, like I'm not against if 
somebody right now wanted to do polygamy, like as long as everybody's an adult and consensual, I really think more power to you. But when there's that kind of coercion, manipulation, that's not somebody I could see being a prophet ever behaving that way. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that point because, and I want to be delicate with these topics because I know like even with my experience, people are still in these religions, people still align with it as it relates to their spiritual journey. And I know that everybody is on a different journey. And so their perspective of the faith may be different. So I do want to put that piece out there, but I also at the same time want to be transparent about your experience and your story. And so I'm hearing that you just pretty much looked into the scriptures a little bit more, looked into the stories anymore, and then you kind of had something internally speak to you after 36 years. Did you have a marriage in the church or were you close related or um, next to families that have these situations where your family, did you grow up with like more than one mother in the household or dad that had multiple wives? No, I didn't meet anybody personally who had been in a family practicing polygamy until I was an adult. And I didn't even realize until after I'd known her for quite a while, because there can be a lot of shame around that because a lot of society looks down on that or thinks that there's a lot of things wrong with it which there can be. And so she wasn't very forthcoming about that. It took a while of getting to know her a little bit better. And even then we never really talked about it intimately. It was just kind of a thing I knew about her, but I've never actually known anybody who practices polygamy. At least that I, not that I know of. It could have been and I just wasn't aware. (laughs) Yeah. Did you get married while you were in the church or? Yeah. So we left like three and a half years ago and my husband and I have been married for 16 years now. So oh, wow. we got married in the temple, which is kind of disappointing because it's not romantic at all. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the conversation about leaving the church, was that something that you guys came to a conclusion together or did you pretty much share with him how you were feeling and then he was on board or what was that like? Yeah. So I'm really, really thankful for the way our journey went and that we went together. So after I had read some things, I went to him right away. And I said, I read this book and it had some things in it and they were not faith promoting, but I know that there, because I was still fully believing. I was like, I know that there has to be answers where it all makes sense. And so I'm going to keep looking for them. But I shared with him like this and this and this, like they just feel off, but there's got to be an explanation that makes it okay. And so I continued reading just through information that the church itself has provided. And he went to another document called the CES letter, which kind of compiles a lot of the most of the problems with church history. And then also some of the current things and just puts it all in this nice little document for people to be able to read. And so it was actually really quick for us. Some people, it'll be, it'll take years of studying and just inner turmoil, struggling to figure out if they should leave or not. And for us, I went from 100% believing, really active in the church, holding leadership callings. We would attend the temple every other week to sitting in my bishop's office, who's like a pastor, like our leader of the congregation, just sitting in his office, just sobbing, like telling him like, I need released from my callings. It's none of this is true. And we can't be coming to church anymore because I can't align with this anymore. And so in two weeks, we went from 
believing this religion that was entwined in practically every aspect of our lives, had influenced and impacted every major decision that we had made to nothing Mm. in two weeks. Let's sit with nothing. How did that feel at the moment where you said, I'm no longer a part of this faith and you left the bishop's office and you don't come back to that next sermon or that next service. I'm not sure um, how it's tagged, but what was that journey like after you decided to detach yourself from the faith? What did that feel like? So devastating is not a big enough word, Mm. like utterly and completely devastating. Like your entire foundation just crumbles and is gone and you feel like you're free falling and like I said, it had influenced every decision and every aspect of our lives. So then you start to look at everything like, and reevaluate everything. And I remember there was one moment and it was shortly after that visit with the bishop and I was taking a shower and I was crying because it was just so overwhelming and so sad. And just out of habit and instinct, I started praying. I was like, dear heavenly father. And then I started sobbing mm. because I didn't even know who am I praying for? Is there even a God? Like, how am I going to get through this hardest thing that I've ever had to face without the things that I've always used to get me through the hardest things I've ever had to face? Mm, Like, I I just felt so lost. And I sat with that a moment. And this realization came to me, just this thought came, like, if it's not true now, it wasn't true then. Mm. If there wasn't a God, if there's not a God now, then there wasn't then. You have always made it through. You've always had the capacity within you and you still have the capacity within you. And it really helped me to just take ownership of my life a little bit more at that point to acknowledge that just because I had called something, you know, the Holy Ghost or inspiration or revelation or any other name that I had given it doesn't necessarily mean that whatever I was using to get me through didn't exist. I just gave it some other name. Maybe it was always within me. Maybe I was just giving my power away to some other idea or some other being, but it was always me. It was always within me. So you use the word um, maybe a lot that maybe you were giving your power away. Are you at a place where you have a concrete faith or what is your spirituality now or your relationship with religion in general or any faith? Is it that you just rely on yourself or do you have something else that you believe? So I don't really subscribe to any religion. I would not say that I'm of any religious belief, but I do feel spiritual. I do feel connection to the divine or my higher self or the universe, whatever you want to call that. And I look at that and I'm like, even if that's just based in a little bit of science that we're all energy and we're all connected through energy, then then I still feel connected to that. But I would say that my spirituality is very fluid. And I love that because I came from a very concrete, all of the answers were given to you. I knew I could tell you the answers to life just like that. (laughs) So now sitting in this space of the unknown and embracing the beauty of that. And to know that my beliefs can and will change as I learn and I grow. And that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. Do you believe that when you had that nothing and you were doing all that sobbing, that you tapped into any depression during that time? Or was it just like for a little moment that you had to cry? Or did you feel any shifts in your mental well-being when you left religion? 
So having um, grown up in an abusive home and having survived sexual assault, I feel like depression is something that I am more prone to anyway, and probably a little bit more prone to a traumatic response. And so I definitely experienced something called religious trauma syndrome, which I did not know even existed prior to having this experience. And I don't think that it's very broadly known, but basically in the same way that you can experience trauma from a car accident, an assault, a natural disaster, you can feel some of the same effects mentally, physiologically, cognitively from religious trauma syndrome, which essentially is leaving any sort of very structured, firm, high demand religious belief system. And some of the ways that that manifests is you can have difficulty making decisions because you don't know if you can trust yourself. You can be really confused about your identity, who you are, because you thought you had your identity figured out and then your faith is gone and you don't know who you are anymore. There can be anxiety, panic attacks, depression, difficulties with sleep, eating. You can have nightmares. There can be developmental delays as far as your emotional development, your intellectual, social, sexual development when you've come from a very structured and just like keeping you in a bubble, basically, kind of environment. And also most people I feel experience a rupture within their family and their social network. And that's def- that definitely happened to us. Like we lost almost our entire social community when we left. Yeah. So there's two things I want to hit on. I want to come back to the religion trauma syndrome, but you mentioned that you were prone to depression because of the abuse you had as a child, both sexual abuse and just abuse overall. Were your parents a part of the religion? Did they practice it? And if that was the case, how did they reconcile with being okay with the abuse or where did the sexual abuse come from if you're okay with sharing? Oh, no, I'm okay with that. So my dad has been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, as well as bipolar disorder. And so if you know anything about either of those, like that can be really, really hard to grow up with and to have as a parent. My mom was just repeating cycles of abuse. She came from it. She was a victim of abuse by her husband. It just She just carried on the cycle of it. And so I think that there was cognitive dissonance in regards to what went on in our home. And I'm going to put a little asterisk disclaimer. Like I'm not saying that every Mormon family has abuse issues because I know that that is absolutely not the case. There are happy, loving families. But I do think that when a religion is founded in control, manipulation, and abuse of women... Even if it's not mainstream practice, there's still threads and elements of that that continue that create very controlling, abusive, narcissistic men sometimes. Mm-hmm. So what is Sorry, your... I feel like there was another question. No, 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 no. You answered it. I was just kind of saying, okay. I just think we probably want to dig a little bit, just a little bit more because I'm trying to align, okay, like there's the faith 
there's people who practice the faith and then we bear children and the faith is supposed to be something that's, that's good, at least for the community that's created for. And then we have, you know, the people that we look up to the most, our parents actually cause an abuse. So if them actually following this faith, what is your relationship like with your father now? So um, I tried for a while to establish boundaries with him and they were not respected. And every interaction that we had just left me feeling hurt, feeling less than, you know, just a lot of those not necessary things. And so we actually haven't spoken in years. And it's something that, that I'm very okay and at peace with. But I do also think that sometimes if somebody hears that you no longer have contact with a family member, there's just kind of this assumption that it was just a decision that was like, well, they made me angry. And so I'm not going to talk to them ever again. (laughs) When I think in reality, definitely for myself and probably in most people who choose to disconnect from a family member, it's a very difficult decision and one that they make with great thought. And usually it's a last resort after trying to have healthy boundaries, after trying to communicate what you need within the relationship and not not being honored or respected then the only response left then is to discontinue the relationship. And I have said, and will continue to say that if he ever got therapy, if he ever, you know, acknowledged or expressed remorse about the harm that he had done, I would be open to a relationship, but not until there's accountability taken. Yeah, it definitely takes two to tangle, they say. And I say that because I struggle with that as well. It's just, you know, when you're separating yourself from certain family members, it's almost as if you're being the bad guy, but it's also a protection for yourself to do things like that. And it's, and I always like to share the example because it's like you're trying to explain to other people who may have good relationships or maybe have different perspective about family and relationships that can align with you being able to be good to yourself in order to have other healthier relationships and not have that, you know, drag you down. And I would say like, if this was any other person in the world and they weren't my family member, they didn't have my last name, I would not allow them to treat me this way. So why do we give people who have our last names a a way out, you know, a free pass. pass. That's yeah, exactly what I was looking for. You give them a free pass to say, you can treat me any way you want to, because you have my same last name, but it's like every, we're all people, (laughs) you know, I happen to get aligned to this family tree, but if this is something I'm connected with, then at one point you're going to have to disconnect yourself to create something new. I don't want to keep this on. I don't want to keep that same dynamic and and pass that on because I'm not being bold enough. I think it's really bold to make that decision to the yourself from family because it's mostly relying on how other people think about that decision because ultimately you want to get out of that discomfort. You being able to make the decision to leave and to think about leaving and to even bring attention to the fact that you're abused. These are really strong qualities of a person. Some people will continue to be okay and that's dangerous. And then sometimes some people just don't know, but to be able to go through all this and still like say, I'm not going to do it anymore and detach myself like you know that's a present but yeah like the family dynamic is a really strong one especially because you also create family bonds in the community and you don't have any friends or I guess that community to lean on anymore how did you transition socially did you guys go out and just make new friends or did it align with you guys naturally 
So this was not a hundred percent the reason, but we sold our house and we moved. (laughs) (laughs) Become new people. Go to a city where no one knows your name. (laughs) Yes. Like it was a contributing factor. It was not the only reason, but it was a contributing factor. And we were apostates to everybody that had been our social circle before. We were no longer safe. We were no longer welcome. Our kids weren't welcome. And so it definitely contributed to our decision to move. And then we just really went out of our way to be open to new relationships when we moved into our new community. And we have made such beautiful friendships. I also reached out and joined some online communities for others who had left the Mormon religion. And that was immensely healing and helpful and took those offline. And we've met in person and I've made beautiful friendships from that. And at first it was just like sharing our stories of leaving, sharing that heartbreak and that devastation and sharing our anger and our sadness and supporting each other and be like, we'll get through this. It'll be okay. We'll figure this out. Out. And now we get together and nothing about the Mormon church. Yeah, we you're done talking because, about it. Yeah. <laughs> because we're just friends now. Yeah. yeah. How long do you think that occurred? Like the talking it out and being angry? Because I actually resonate with that. Like there's been a transition with the death of the conversation. Like sometimes it'd be like you we were talking about it over and over again. And then it started to gradually disappear. And maybe now my perspective is like, no, I'm done talking about it, but I am now talking talking about again, but with a new lens of like, hey, I wonder if anybody else has something similar to this. But it's no more like of that healing talking with the other people who created it. How long do you think that lasted? Or I'm not sure if you even paid attention, but if you can take a guess, how long do you feel like you guys were building a bond over that trauma? So I will say that I noticed And not to say that it was easy by any means because it was devastating and it was so difficult. But having done a lot of work around healing the trauma from my child abuse and the sexual assaults, like I had a lot of tools. And once I saw, oh, this is religious trauma syndrome. Like once I put that together, like what I'm experiencing right now is trauma. Mm -hmm. I have tools. I have tools for this. And so I feel like I was able to navigate that a little bit more easily than some other people that I saw within the community of those of us who have left. And I definitely was able to reach out and help and like mentor people, even though we were like really close in the timing of leaving, I could recommend things, tools, different resources for healing because I'd already done a lot of healing. And then I was able to rely on those tools myself. But I will say It's probably true of most loss and grief that the first year is the hardest, you know, like our first Christmas out, (laughs) I didn't even want to put, like, I loved Christmas. It was my favorite holiday. We had so many traditions all around centering quality around Christ who I no longer believed in. And so then I was like, well, what do I do for Christmas? And, And this just hurts. Like Christmas just hurts now because it's just reminding me of this loss of my faith and So the first Christmas out was super, super hard. I was just glad to pull it together enough that the kids had a good Christmas. (laughs) But definitely like that first year, as with any loss, it's going to be a little bit challenging and difficult. But I would say like after the first year, it probably started to get a little bit easier. 
Yeah. You mentioned um, tools and resources that you use for healing. I think this is a good time to discuss some tools and resources that like maybe a few. I know it could be in depth, but maybe, you know, the top tools or resources that have helped you and the people that were around you at that time. And also speak about how you started your healing journey in a way where you was able to translate your self-healing to being of service to other people. Absolutely. So I've always been, I kind of joke, like a student of life. I don't have any formal education beyond high school or my massage therapy credentials, but I have studied so many books and webinars and podcasts and taken so many different little courses here and there. And I've learned a lot. And I've especially learned and studied a lot around trauma, having had experienced trauma as a child and PTSD and depression. And so I've done a lot of research around those. And so the things that are really important and have helped me are self-care, which I think people kind of have a misconception of because self-care is not getting pedicures and massages. Like sure, those can be part of self-care, but self-care is making sure that you're okay like making sure that I'm okay. And so sometimes for me, that means sitting and binge watching a show for a day. Sometimes that means cleaning my bedroom. Usually it means that I exercise during the day. Sometimes it means I go for a hike. Sometimes that means that I read a book. Sometimes self-care is writing in my journal, but self-care is helping me feel loved and cared for by myself. And that really helps to nurture me. And also really learning to love myself and know that I am worthy of love and belonging and connection just by being alive. I don't have to earn that. And regardless of any choice that I ever made, I am worthy and I am lovable. So really, really feeling that and have that deeply rooted in my soul has helped a lot. But as far as other tools, like I have a whole list of books that are tremendously helpful. I find somatic things to be really helpful. So yoga, breath work, different exercises like that. Meditation can be really powerful in healing. I've been to lots of talk therapy with counselors. I've done EMDR. I've learned about the vagal nerve and how that impacts our body and is very intertwined with our emotional regulation system and how to calm that or stimulate it depending on what needs to happen. So there's lots of different things. And I will say that there's no recipe for healing from trauma. Like I could sit here and tell you step-by-step what I've done and it might not work for you because all of us experience trauma differently in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies. And so we're going to need different things to heal. And I think one of the best things I did was not give up and to not stop. The first time that therapy didn't really help or it helped, but only for a little bit, I didn't give up. I kept trying different modalities, trying different therapists, reading different books. You just keep going and eventually you find a routine, a balance, a combination of things that work for you. Yeah. Did you ever find any embarrassment with your experience at all? Like talking to people who are not necessarily connected with the faith, like those who left before you bonded with them. Did you ever find any embarrassment when you dealt with people who were at work or something else outside of the church? So there was one experience 
particularly that's coming to mind when you ask this question. When we had moved into our new community, like we were very proactive about meeting new people. And I was at the pool with another mom and we were talking and I shared with her that we had left Mormonism. And my intention was to kind of help her understand me a little bit to maybe, maybe it would help her respect me because that's a very difficult decision to make and life-changing. So, and the next time I saw her, she says, Oh, Tarina, I've got to tell you this story. It's so funny. I was telling my friend about how you guys left Mormonism because I just thought it was so hilarious. I thought she would think it was so funny. And, and my brain kind of stopped listening at that point. And I thought you told somebody about us leaving Mormonism because you thought she'd think it was funny. Like, this was a traumatic life experience for me. This was not a joke. Like this, this was really hard and really difficult. Yeah. So that was definitely a moment where I was like, okay, note to self, <laughs> maybe gain a little bit of connection and trust with a person before we divulge this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. Cause I think I have like, probably like you, like you mentioned before, we all have different ways to heal with trauma and I use humor and I would be very open just saying it to people. So it was almost like I, if I was put myself in your shoes at that moment. I probably would have just, cause I, I think I wanted to get rid of it so much and laugh it away, but make it like, this is so funny. Like, this is so oh, crazy. Like, there are plenty of times we had laughed about the batshit crazy stuff we used to believe in. Yeah. <laughs> Trust me, like, I find great joy in sitting down with people who are like, so really, do Mormons really do this? And I'm like, oh, honey, yes. Let me tell you yeah. all about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then we laugh about how crazy it is. And I don't feel any shame or awkwardness about the fact that I used to believe that because yeah. that's not me anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think that's when I started to feel heal, the healing, like just ramp up is that there is no shame like I can tell my story and I can say it and there's no shame around it because it's just like that's done it's, it's not on me anymore and just because I have this experience doesn't make me any worse than the experiences that you had it may have not been labeled this but we put so many labels out here that all figure out life you know even when we go into like all of the different type of things that we diagnose you know we learn those things like we're just labeling and making definitions and so we can redefine that experience to be something that put us on this new journey of connecting with other people a lot better and connecting with ourselves a lot better and get into that self-love that you spoke about earlier. So yeah, how are you working with people now? Like how can people connect with you? What are, what are ways that you help other people? So I work one-on-one -on -one with clients right now, especially anybody who is transitioning from a religious space to maybe a more spiritual space or anybody maybe who's leaving a more like toxic environment and ready to just figure out who you are. Who are you really? Really fall in love with yourself. Feel comfortable with setting boundaries and just be able to live life authentically and on your own terms in the way that you want to, not the way that family, religion, or society has told you that you should. And people can find me on my website. It's terinamaldonado.com. There's links to all my social media from there, but I'm on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. It's just my name, Tarina Maldonado on any of them. You can search those up. Yeah, awesome. So I'll have that in the show notes for those who want to connect with Tarina. And then eventually on the website, oh, you'll be able to find her in the directory. 
underneath this conversation topic. Before I let you go, I would love for you to share a self-tivity statement. And for those who are listening, for the first time, a self-tivity statement can be created any time. It's nothing new under the sun, but I just put a little twist on it. It is an affirmation plus an intentional action, a behavior that supports your affirmation. And it really stemmed from a study that I was reading about affirmations and, and how they don't work because they almost disconnected the people from actually believing that they can do it. And so like the way that I shifted that perspective was that, well, if we could do something that we know that we can do that supports that affirmation day by day or, you know, within our life or we make it a part of ourselves, then maybe the affirmation would seem like it's not so far away from us. So would you share with us, Tarina, your self-tivity statement? Yes, I love that. It's such a fun word. And I love the concept behind it, too. It's so fabulous. I love it. Okay, so I will love myself by choosing to do one thing for me every day. Nice. And Serena, I just want to thank you for taking this time out with me for being transparent and answering all of my questions and allowing this conversation to be free. And I hope that none of the questions came off in a way that I didn't expect them to, but I I really wanted to have this conversation in love and to really just create a space where we can talk about all different types of topics in one place. Even if people were coming on here and they did believe in the faith, like what did they extract from it? Like what is good for it? You know, and I'm pretty sure when we're all in these days and we started out in anything, there was something that we loved from it, you know, or something that helped us through. Like you were mentioning, like this was the source that you use for all your decision making. And I think it felt like there were good decisions at one time. And then there's a shift and then there's a new path to go. It doesn't have to be wrong or right, but it's just a new path. And so thank you for sharing with us your new path. And if there's anything else that you'd like to share, you can do so now because we're going to be ending the show. (laughs) Thank you. It's really been a fun conversation. And I would just leave that if you're a person who is maybe questioning or thinking about making a transition in your faith and in your spiritual journey to listen to that and trust yourself that you're strong enough to face those questions and that you are so courageous and brave to even ask those questions. And so I applaud you for your courage. Well, everyone, thank you again for being here with us today. I had a beautiful conversation and I hope to have many more. I would love maybe one day you can come back on the show, Tarina, to talk about your book and to, you know, go into that with more detail if you're open. If not, that's cool. No hard feelings. <laughs> but um, again, thank you. And for those who listened today, if there was any return of investment from your experience with us, please let us know in the comments, reach out, leave a message. And until next time, hold on to you as much as you can. Hold on to your health, your being, and your mind. Be mindful. Bye.